HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burned spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthote linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come, join me at my welcome table. That was the voice of Dr. Jessica B. Harris, celebrated food writer and historian, and host of My Welcome Table on HRN. We'll return to her story a bit later in the show. At the beginning of 2019, HRN launched our 10th anniversary Hall of Fame. Over the course of our first decade making revolutionary food radio, we've brought the most powerful voices in the food world to listeners all around the world. This week, we're celebrating the writers whose stories have enriched HRN's airwaves these past 10 years. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. To many of us, the name Michael Pollan is synonymous with books which have inspired millions to think and eat differently. It's no surprise he joins our Hall of Fame with best-selling classics like The Omnivore's Dilemma and The Botany of Desire. Back in 2016, he sat down with Aaron Fairbanks on an episode of Evolutionaries and shared his incredible life path, starting with his own upbringing in the suburbs of Long Island. There was a kind of dream of something new and better uh, that the suburbs represented. And it did have this imagery that was very important. Um, you know, there, was, there were lots of houses pretending to be more than they were that looked like, you know, 
southern mansions and, you know, with columns and giant chandeliers on these, you know, crappy two-by-four houses. And so there was this sense of we're now living in a, in a, in a more graceful place. And, um, and nobody was thinking about tradition, their own family traditions. They were, they were moving up to something else. And, and that was reflected in the food, too. Nobody dared eat the food of their, their own childhood. They were eating what Julia Child was talking about and, and James Beard and, what, you know, Craig Claiborne. And so there was, along with the suburbs, came a, a whole way of life that was looking forward, not looking back, and, uh, or looking to Europe and not looking to, you know, Romania and Russia, where my ancestors came from. Um, so it was self, you know, it was that whole self-made American idea that you, you can just kind of create a new world from scratch, including a new way of eating and a new, new kind of architecture and whatever it is, a new way of dressing. You weren't, you weren't beholden to the past. And there was something, you know, great about that. I mean, it's not, you know, it's easy to look down on it, but it was full of optimism and creativity and, and learning. I mean, people not just accepting what they had, but but trying to learn how to cook something different or live in a slightly different way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very much the American idea. Although Pollan grew up in this suburban environment, by becoming a writer, he was able to investigate and share incredible stories about transformations of our food system. In The Omnivore's Dilemma, Pollan describes the work of Joel Salatin at Polyface Farm, a leader in American grass-based farming models. Well, part of it is is finding models that are really inspiring. I mean, for me, it was finding Joel Salatin's farm. And that, you know, oh, you don't have to use all that oil to grow food. You can use the sun. You can put the food system back on solar energy. That's incredible. And you can sequester carbon and build fertility and actually create soil at the same time you're feeding people. Those kind of, you know, we live in a world of, of, of where we assume our relationship to nature is tragic and zero-sum. And that for us to get what we want, nature is diminished. And you go to a farm like that and you realize, no, we can feed ourselves and heal the earth at the same time. So those inspiring examples, I think, are really important. So you build on those. And the other is you build on victories. So we should celebrate our victories. And, um, and the fact that this little tiny movement has the food industry afraid and on the run. It's, and, you know, and why? Well, because we have the ear of the consumer. And, and the consumer is starting to distrust them. So, um, so finding inspiring examples and building on victories, I think that's how you create a movement. So you're, you're optimistic. I'm definitely optimistic, yeah. I mean, it, you know, we're up against um, very powerful forces. Um, but change can come very quickly. Um, you know, it, it can seem impossible, and then suddenly it's happening. You can hear more Michael Pollan on episode 31 of HRN's Evolutionaries. We had some debate in the office about whether it was accurate to include Dr. Temple Grandin in this writer's episode. It's true she's the author of more than a dozen books, but she hasn't just written about the food industry. She's helped shape it. By redesigning the process for handling animals in meatpacking plants and slaughterhouses, she's probably eased the suffering of more animals than any person in history. She joined host Katie Kiefer on HRN's What Doesn't Kill You in 2012 to talk about working her way up the supply chain to ensure the humane treatment of meat animals for good. 
A warning that since Dr. Grandin is talking about slaughterhouses, this interview does get graphic. What are, what are the biggest stumbling blocks to having a plant work as humanely as you would like to see, as efficiently as they would like to see? What's, what's going wrong? It gets down to management deciding that humane handling is important. You know, I've worked with plants that had older facilities that weren't quite as fancy, and they were able to do a good job. You've got to have management that cares. And if management doesn't care, then you're going to have a bunch of bad stuff. Right. Now, when I first started out in my career, I thought I could fix everything with equipment. I got over that. It took me 10 years to fully get over that. <laughs> oh, I and hope you have it totally. <laughs> I worked on training employees, but managers untrained them. So then I worked on training managers. That was all through the, the, the uh, 90s. Then the final thing was to work on training companies like McDonald's and Wendy's and Whole Foods and other companies on how to audit meatpacking plants using a numerical scoring system because it really helps a lot when you have a big customer making them do stuff right. Uh, so why don't you talk about the uh, scoring system? Exactly what is that and what, is it, what does it do? Well, we, you directly observe how they're handling the cattle, how many cattle fell down during handling, mm-hmm. how many cattle were mooing their head off in a kill box. You're only allowed three out of 100. How many animals do they poke with the electric prodder? If you want an excellent score, it's got to be no more than 5%. How many animals did you actually shoot with one shot? You've got to get 95% down on the first shot, um, then the other 5% get a really quick second shot, and then you better not hang any life ones up on the rail. And then the other thing is, I'm a big believer in video auditing. It's very important that third-party auditors audit it over the Internet because this solves the problem of acting good when the auditor's there and then mm-hmm. acting bad when the auditor is gone. Dr. Grandin has helped countless people, too. She's written extensively about being on the autism spectrum and how it shapes her thinking. Dr. Grandin's achievements, including her writing and speaking career, have helped people without autism better understand those who are on the spectrum, and has served as a reminder that activism, creativity, and change come from all kinds of minds. You can find more of Dr. Grandin's HRN appearances on her Hall of Fame page. We'll be back to share more voices from the writers of the HRN Hall of Fame with you after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu, and Kitade Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler. This week, we're shining the spotlight on some of the literary masters whose voices have been an important part of HRN's first decade. Few authors have been on the air more regularly than Elizabeth Ando, who has appeared on Japan Eats eight times over the last four years. She's the author of six books on Japanese cooking, including two IACP award winners, An Ocean of Flavor and Washoku. She was also Gourmet Magazine's Japan correspondent for three decades. But Ando is not ethnically Japanese. In fact, she grew up in New York City. Here she is on her first ever appearance on Japan Eats. So yeah, actually, you lived in Japan since uh, 1967 for 48 years. Long term. (laughs) 
So uh, what made you to go to Giovanni in the first place? It was uh, what I call serendipity, sort of a happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an opportunity for me, uh, an unclaimed scholarship at the University of Michigan where I was a student. And um, nobody else, I think, applied for it. I'm not exactly sure that I had no competition, but I believe I had no competition. And it was to go to Japan for a year, and it seemed like a a more interesting option than what was otherwise going to be available to me. And on the spur of the moment, said yes, and um, landed up in, in Japan and in a very rural community. But did you know that you wanted to stay for a long time? Had you asked me um, then where I would be in 2015, I don't think I ever would have imagined what happened. But I did know that I wanted to extend my stay, that in order to do it, certainly in the 1960s, um, if you didn't not only speak Japanese, but read and write it, Mm -hmm. it was just, it wasn't going to be possible for me to do anything that I wanted to. Mm. So I had found out about a program at um, ICU, International Christian University, outside of Tokyo, Mm. that was looking for, um, gee, I call them guinea pigs. I mean, people to (laughs) sign on for this program. It was an experimental program to teach um, Japanese to non-Japanese. At the time, they told me it was totsukitoka, 10 months, 10 days, and it meant absolutely nothing to me. And I think probably not much to most Americans. If I said nine months, I think most people would think, ah, that's how long it takes to have a baby. And indeed, that's how the Japanese Mm, count um, by lunar months. And so the idea of the program was that you were to be reborn into the Japanese language. And it was just short of one year. And the program started with uh, Urashima Taro, a fairy tale in Japanese, and it ended with Sōtai uh, Seiriron, the theory of relativity. While studying Japanese, Ando began watching food television. She'd make sure to be in front of a TV each day to watch Yanagihara Toshio-sensei, who later became her mentor. They embarked on a journey to translate some of his essays to English, now available as a book titled Ajiwo Dazunete, Exploring Indigenous Flavors. Toshio-sensei encouraged Ando to write her own stories, which is how her career as an ambassador for Japanese cuisine began. You can listen to all seven of Elizabeth Ando's interviews on Japan Eats, plus one recent appearance on A Taste of the Past at heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. Learn even more about her work at her website, tasteofculture.com. Compass Point. 49.51 degrees north, 2.21 degrees east. Paris, France. There is likely no greater expert on the food and foodways of the African diaspora than Dr. Jessica B. Harris. She's the author of 12 critically acclaimed cookbooks documenting African-American food and food culture. From 2012 to 2016, Dr. Harris hosted My Welcome Table on HRN, taking listeners with her around the world on culinary excursions from New Orleans to Benin. One city in particular played a crucial role in Dr. Harris's lifelong love of food, Paris. Much like Elizabeth Ando, Harris's life was changed forever by a year spent studying abroad during college. In episode three of My Welcome Table, Dr. Harris tells us about the genesis of her passion for Paris and the city's cuisine. I'm not sure just where the picture is, 
probably in some dust-covered album under the piano or tucked away in a book somewhere, but I remember it as though it were yesterday. I'm dressed in a red tweed suit with a black fur collar and there's a floppy felt hat atop my newly done hair. Black leather gloves and high heels complete the picture. I guess I'm looking what passed for sophisticated in 1966, but with the hindsight of almost 50 years, I realize that my eyes betray the feeling of apprehension that I must have felt. The picture was taken in the departure lounge at the then newly named John F. Kennedy Airport, and I was heading off into the unknown to spend my junior year of college in Paris. I'd been to the City of Lights once before with my parents and loved the oldness of the place. I loved the buildings, even before the grime was cleaned off to reveal the warm, golden hues that we see today. I loved the way people seemed to have of honoring the past and the fact that they spoke another language, one that I'd almost mastered. I didn't know it then, but I'd been marked for France since birth. From pre-K onward, my parents had sent me to the UN school where I learned Frère Jacques along with Row, Row, Row Your Boat and started learning what was still the language of diplomacy in kindergarten. By the time the photograph was taken, I'd become fairly fluent and a first-class Francophile. I'm still not quite sure how I managed it, but after arrival, I got my numerous pieces of luggage through customs and into a taxi and myself off to 37 Rue Gay-Lussac in the Latin Quarter, where I'd stay for my first few months in the city. The rest fades into a blur where food becomes a hallmark of my Parisian experience. During my time there in that year, food provided many of my benchmarks. In my new neighborhood... I ate my way from the paper napkin that was given to tourists and transients to a cloth napkin, sign of a frequent diner at a local restaurant. I visited assiduously, as to me, that cloth napkin was a tangible sign of my bonding with the city. After each meal, it was deposited in its cubbyhole to be retrieved at the next meal, and it was laundered weekly to begin the routine again. I studied in cafes and learned about Diablo Mont, mint syrup and fizzy water, Diablo Cassis, black currant syrup and more fizzy water, and Citron Pressé, lemonade, French style, and I could tell anyone where the best croque-monsieur could be located in the 5th arrondissement. I got up before dawn to trek to Leal to see the porters haul sides of beef and heavy crates of vegetables and had the obligatory bowl of onion soup and the grilled pig's foot that tasted nothing like the boiled ones my mother fixed back home. The stomach of Paris, as Zola called it, is long gone, moved to Rangis and beyond, but the memory of the dawn trek back home before the first metro is one that I share with other Parisian old-timers. I would later move in with a family in the oh-so-very-fancy 16th arrondissement and there make friends that have lasted me my lifetime. I would head off every Sunday with my French father to the Marché de Neuilly and from him learn to thump Cavaillon melons with the best of them, pinch lettuce, 
peek under fish gills, shake my head with a Gallic, no, 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 when unimpressed by the produce. Most importantly, I learned to eat garlic in all forms. In short, I became a Parisian in everything but passports. You can hear more from Dr. Jessica B. Harris by searching for My Welcome Table wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to get to know all of HRN's Hall of Fame honorees, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Pauline Munch, Oscar Belkin-Sessler, Aaliyah Papes, and Hannah Conley. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station.